Welcome everyone to the first of two events we're holding around the G7 uh, summit. The next one is on climate on Monday, which I recommend you sign up for. We've got a fantastic lineup of speakers for that. But today we have the rather ambitiously entitled uh, panel on the G7 and foreign policy. And as I'm beginning to realise from the questions you've already started putting in, we should perhaps have specified the theme a little bit more carefully than we did. But I'm delighted to have with me three fantastic speakers who I'm sure will be able to answer all of your questions. No pressure, everyone. Uh, we've got Laurie Friedman, Emeritus Professor of War Studies at King's College London, uh, Fiona Hill, who is the Robert Bosch Senior Fellow at the Brookings Institution, and last but absolutely not least, Rana Mitter, Professor of the History and Politics of Modern China at Oxford University. We're going to keep this quite conversational. What I would say to you as ever is put your questions in on Slido. If you can, if you feel like helping me out, if you can vote for the questions you'd mo most like me to pose to the panelists, because what tends to happen at these events is we end up with loads of questions and it just makes my life easier if the popular ones rise to the top. But just to start us off, Laurie, if I can, with you, apart from a load of good headlines and a load of good photo opportunities, what substantively does the Prime Minister hope to get out of this summit in terms of foreign policy ambitions? Well, you, you've already mentioned one of the important <laughs> things, which is the good photo opportunities showing him side by side with President Biden, hosting other important people and being amongst them. Um, I think it's a continuation of the foreign policy that was there as soon as the um, his government concluded that Biden was likely to win the election, which was to align themselves as closely as possible with the new American administration, um, to try to get over the idea that, uh, beyond the idea that Johnson was in some way Britain's Trump. Um, and I think the ways in which that is being done, uh, one which was always there and, and is, remains important, which is climate change, and the other which has sort of worked out better than probably uh, Johnson assumed, which is dealing with the pandemic, uh, because though he's not able to announce Britain's final escape from, um, from lockdown restrictions, he can at least point to one of the most successful vaccination programmes in the world, and he undoubtedly will do that. So I think that is, I'm, I'm there to getting out of um, recovering from COVID and climate change are two of the obvious and biggest items on the agenda. So I think he'll want to show as much alignment as possible with Biden. He's obviously got um, the Northern Ireland issue lurking around. I don't think it'll loom as large um, publicly as, as some would suggest, some may hope, um, but it's certainly there and he'll want, I think, to keep that as much to the margins as possible. Well, I suspect President Macron might have other ideas, but we'll see as the uh, the summit goes on. But Fiona, I mean, you lived over here for long enough to understand and remember how excited we get when a US president says the word special relationship. Uh, how, how close a bond do you think there is or could be between this British administration and the Biden administration, particularly given all the stuff we heard beforehand about potential problems over Brexit, earlier comments made by the Prime Minister about uh, President Obama and the like? Well, I think you've actually put uh, your finger in the question, uh, which is probably deliberate, um, about where things might actually work, which is the administration. I mean, I, I noticed you didn't say between President Biden and Prime Minister Johnson. 
because you know obviously on the personality side of things you know their backgrounds just their whole approach uh to politics and in fact into personal relationships i mean you couldn't really get two more different people than um joe biden and uh, boris johnson I'm, I'm sure there's some commonality you know kind of there that we could if we spent a lot of time passing it we could come up with but i think in terms of the administrations um, I think that actually there's quite a potential for um, them finding common ground. Um, if you think about Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and who spent the years uh, before coming back into uh, office again, I mean, he was fully anticipated to frankly be Hillary Clinton's National Security Advisor, certainly someone very high up in her administration. He spent the rest of the time um, at the Carnegie um, Endowment for International Peace right next door to Brookings, working on a very interesting uh, project on a foreign policy for the middle class. So it's very important for him to try to tie domestic politics to foreign policy. Now, as you said, the theme of this is the G7, but there is a common thread throughout many of the G7 members right now, when we start to kind of look at the domestic politics of those countries, about how they reinvigorate their democracies. The G7 is, is in a way the stand-in right now for that um, uh, meeting of the democracies that Joe Biden was hoping to have, but has uh, faced a lot of criticism at home, actually, because of, you know, the threats to democracy at home in the United States. But the G7 is very much the group of democracies and the others that have been invited are very much part of that, although China, and uh, Ron is going to talk about this, is also one of the targets and uh, focal points of uh, this meeting. But every one of the major countries is having a problem about how they reinvigorate their domestic politics to deliver for their populations, particularly post-pandemic. It's not just a question of recovery, but can you actually use that recovery to spur longer-term change? And of course, Boris Johnson and his team, you know, people like John Bew and others who've been brought in, who are frankly, you know, very similar to um, uh, Jake Sullivan um, in terms of their outlook, have been kind of thinking about how you mesh domestic and foreign policy together. There's been that whole integrated review that the UK has done, but there's also that has been you know, tied in some part to the whole idea of levelling up. Well, um, you know, I've heard Karen Pierce, the UK ambassador here, saying build back better, which is the slogan that Biden's been using. It's actually a British slogan. You know, so, um, you know, whether we're going to fight about, you know, who started that, there is this whole idea about how do we recover from the pandemic? How do we build back better in terms of our institutions? But most importantly, how do we put our countries on a future development perspective to return prosperity? And most importantly, to uh, address the inequalities, the glaring inequalities that both the UK and the US have had. I mean, why did we get Brexit? I mean, you and Anne have done some amazing studies on this, and I think there are all kinds of you know different complex reasons for this. But part of it is the glaring inequality and the gaps between you know many of the regions outside of London and uh, London itself, and inside London too, where, between the different boroughs. Uh, you know, which are, you know, the north-south divide, but it, you know, cuts all the way across um, in the UK, but in the United States as well, the Rust Belt, all of the forgotten places of the United States. And Biden knows he has to address this, just as Johnson knows that he has to do something about this to retain the votes from, you know, the red wall that he broke down in the general election. So I think that there's a lot of places where they're on the same page, and other G7 members are in that position too. You think about Mario Draghi, you know, for example, um, in, in Italy, a technocratic government coming in, but he has to address the domestic problems in Italy, not just what's happening in Europe. Macron, the Gilets Jaunes, the Yellow Vest movement, it's the same phenomenon. So I think they're all in that same position. And ultimately, you know, kind of as Ron is going to tell us, how are we all going to be competitive with a China that isn't facing these problems in the same way, although it's got plenty of its own? 
I suppose that's one reason among many why this summit is in Cornwall. That you know, there's a political premium on taking things outside of the southeast and into parts of the country that feel they've been overlooked in the past. So, Rana, I mean, Rana, coming to you, I mean, the sort of the ghost at the feast at this summit uh, is China. I mean, you know, people might not be talking about it very much, and China's certainly not there, but it seems to be preoccupying many of these world leaders. I mean, I suppose there are two questions to you. What prospects do you think there are of the G7 coming up with a coherent policy or line towards China? And secondly, what do the Chinese make of what's going on? Absolutely, uh, Anand. Um, I think that I can answer the second part first, if I may, because I've actually had quite recent experience of this just within the last 24 to 48 hours. Um, a couple of interviews I've done online with various Chinese media outlets, including the Global Times, which those who are fans of international Chinese media will know is one of the most, how can one put it, assertive of the public facing uh, media presentations run by the Communist Party. But to be absolutely fair, and if they're watching Hi Guys, they were very, very charming, very courteous in their questioning. And I hope they didn't get me into saying anything that was too, uh, too, too dubious. What I think was important about the thrust of what they had to ask, because I think this says something about the tenor of the conversation that China is having about its relationship with the West in general, and of course around the G7 meeting, which they're very much aware of in particular right now, uh, is the nature of what they see as confrontation. And I'll come back to that word uh, in, in a second. I found it rather bizarre that actually at least one other Chinese interview, actually not the Global Times, but another one I, I spoke to recently, used the word battle, used the word struggle, much more than, I mean, I didn't use those words at all. And I even picked her up on it actually at various points because it seemed to me that sometimes language is part of what can be formative to the way that people think about some of these international affairs. And to be honest, there is something that is somewhat problematic, alarming even at times, about the way in which so much of the new relationship between the West and China is being phrased in these often quite martial terms. But mm. let's sp st stick for a moment to the question of what the Chinese are looking at before turning for a few minutes to the G7 and where I think they're going with at least some of these, these agendas. If you look, and Anand, who hasn't spent all night up reading every detail of the new five-year plan, uh, it's the only thing that could possibly beat the latest UK-EU uh, uh, report uh, in terms of grabbiness value, I have to, uh, to say, an even more scintillating prose if, if such a thing were possible. You'll actually be surprised, I think, about quite how much of that uh, five-year plan is focused on things that, as I think Fiona was alluding to, actually, uh, in a slightly different context, are very inward looking. It's about stimulating domestic consumer growth. It's about trying to deal with the eternal and fast growing and very, very serious problem of environmental degradation writ small, well, it's not small, it's actually quite large, but climate change, of course, writ very, very large. It's also about the ability to try and do, and again, as both I think Laurie and Fiona were, were, were pointing out, dealing with the fact that China in the short term you know, let's give them credit, has dealt in the short term with suppressing the pandemic pretty effectively, at least in terms of, you know, locking down bits of cities where it uh, emerges and not letting one out again until it, it's, it, it's pushed down. And that's certainly a way in which the virus at least can be temporarily tamed. But the wider question of when the country's going to open its borders, when international trade is going to come back in a big way, when students are going to start going both ways, all of these are still just as much of a mystery in Beijing as they are in London, Washington, or Paris. So in some senses, the inward lookingness which is happening at the moment in the G7 economies is echoed to a significant extent in China. And I think it's worth saying that because so much of what we in the West notice about China, rightly, is about outward looking 
issues and often quite confrontational ones, South China Sea, um, Taiwan uh, being part of that too. The Chinese would say it's internal, the rest of the world are you know, keen to point out that it has huge external consequences. Internal, of course, we should mention Xinjiang and Hong Kong as well, but nonetheless, international implications. So remembering that the restarting of the economy and the dealing with huge inequalities and problems within China are actually really, really central to the central goal of the Chinese Communist Party, which is staying in power for another hundred years, having been there for the last um, hundred. So we'll come back perhaps later in the conversation to some of the ways in which China sees some of these, these, these issues. Mm-hmm. But I want to just spend one more minute talking about the G7 side of things and how they're seeing it. I'm pretty sure it was the Biden administration. I've heard this phrase, phrasing from various people, but it was someone senior, it may even have been Jake Sullivan or uh, uh, himself, talking about confrontation, cooperation, and uh, the other one beginning with C, which has now come off the top of my uh, uh, top of my uh, head. The competition, that's the other one. Indeed, remember it just in time. Um, as the three driving um, pathways for the West to think about, the liberal world actually, because Japan and all sorts of other countries are involved, to think about its involvement with China in the next decade, two decades and beyond. And I think it's fair to say that at the moment, part of the agenda that the G7 will be discussing and one that will start, or at least be continued here, but will by no means be resolved in the next couple of days in that nice resort holiday in Cornwall, is how you make these things compatible with each other. Now, just because it's not something that's said too often, the cooperation side is real and has to be uh, pushed forward. Climate change is one obvious area. And you know the next two big meetings, well, the next one, of course, in the UK is COP26 in Glasgow in uh, November. And that is one where actually the rubber's gonna meet the road in terms of the US being back in the Paris Accord, the UK wanting to play a global you know, leading role in terms of bringing sides together. So the challenge for the UK will be, how do you get China to take that conversation seriously? Actually, and reassuringly, some of the signs are not least with representative John Kerry uh, being over in Beijing quite recently, the Chinese themselves, not least for reasons of, of personal salvation of the country, are quite keen to actually decouple to some extent the climate change discussions from other ones because they know they need them too. The other cooperative area I'd mentioned briefly, it doesn't look like it now, but I think it's probably gonna have to be, is vaccine cooperation, both in terms of production within particular countries. And you know, the number of countries that are still producing original vaccines, the UK, I'm very glad to say, the US, Germany, but China, of course, is going to be need to be matched to the fact that huge swathes of the global south in particular are not vaccinated and will need to be. It seems to me impossible that that could be done really very fast without Chinese vaccines being some part of that mixture. There are questions to ask about you know, their lasting value, how effective they are, but the idea that they can be cut out of the equation, at least the way that it seems to be at the moment, seems to be very minimal. So there is that corporate development that has to be there. I'll say even less about the competition side of things and the and the confrontation side because they're the ones that are better known. But I think it's fair to say that on everything it doesn't have to be military confrontation, but on issues such as norms on international trade, reform of the WTO, the question of how, for instance, standards on both norms and ethics for artificial intelligence, which is one area where both China and the liberal world have huge stakes, huge investments, and very unpredictable futures. If they're not talking about all this stuff then I have to say that they are missing a great number of tricks on what's going to be important in the next few years. But I think that those are the areas where the Chinese dimension is going to be very much at the center of what the G7 will be talking about over those, I believe, sea shanties and Cornish pasties appear to be on the, the menu. So that might count as some sort of uh, you know, new uh, global turning point in and of itself. Thanks, Anand. Thanks, Right. Can I just follow up on a couple of things you said, 
Rana. I mean, the first is, you know, it's very interesting what you said about the Chinese being willing to separate off the climate from other aspects of foreign policy uh, competition or whatever it might be. But that still means, doesn't it, that Boris Johnson has to be careful because he needs to keep the Chinese on side because, you know, as ever, he wants COP26 to succeed, not just because he wants a climate deal, but because he wants the, the summit that he is hosting to succeed. And actually, if they take too aggressive a tone towards China here, might that imperil the later summit? That's the, the first question. And the second is, I was just slightly curious, you put vaccine rollout across the sort of global south under the in the in the cooperation box. Isn't there a danger that it ends up in the competition box? Um, so, uh, well, as long as it doesn't end up in the confrontation box, I think that's the, the, yeah. the key uh, thing. I have this vision, actually, of, you know, of a, a bunch of Chinese uh, health workers and a bunch of British health workers running across a sort of landscape somewhere in Uganda, both holding vaccines with all the kind of locals running before they get stabbed on both sides. I don't think we want that sort of uh, confrontation, although it's, it's an image to conjure with. Um, I think on the first one, I'm going to say something perhaps goes against, slightly against the conventional wisdom. I think that the British government, of course, needs to be courteous and cooperative with China as a major global actor. I think the idea that it has a lot to lose is not necessarily exactly right. One reason being that I think that there is, if China were not to play a cooperative role in COP26, I think it would reflect much worse on China than it would on the UK, considering that China, of course, is a major player in terms both of climate change cause and climate change engagement. The other thing is that the UK, and we may come back to this later in the conversation, but it's just worth pointing, a lot of the relationship between China and the UK is about potential, not actuality. Unlike Australia, which is in a very difficult position now because it's got 30% plus of its trade with, uh, with China. And so it can be kind of held, you know, in a, in a kind of grip lock. Uh, the UK's trade is actually about 3%. And actually there's not much, you know, you hear about a lot, but you don't hear very much now in the way you did two years ago about a trade deal between the UK and China. I think it's actually unlikely for a variety of reasons. So to some extent, actually, Boris Johnson has some wiggle room on that front as well. And on the vaccine front, just to say, what will happen is, uh, you know, one question, but I think that if we are in a scenario where collectively we realize that having, you know, some jabs, any effective jabs that are safe and work well enough going around the world as quickly as possible, regardless of who makes them, then actually everyone's going to get back to something that might look like the pre-pandemic normal and, you know, China, Britain and the US, I think will have a vested interest in that being the case. Interesting. I've got a question for all of you, sort of based on partly what Fiona and, and, and Rana said. Is Are we going through an era of sort of conceptual change in how foreign policy is viewed? I mean, there was, you know, what there was a time when foreign policy was at least a sort of quasi-autonomous realm of, of state activity. That's to say, here's your domestic stuff that we're doing, and that's the stuff with real electoral consequences. Here's the foreign policy stuff, which is somehow separate. But are we, are we saying that actually that has shifted slightly now, that actually... Every, because the domestic problems are so pressing, everything we do, and that means foreign policy as well, has to be seen through a domestic prism. I mean, Fiona, you talked about the, the fact that levelling up figures in the integrated review, which I just thought was fascinating uh, in, in, in that regard. But is, is, there a, is there a sort of conceptual shift in the nature of foreign policy and its relationship to domestic politics going on, do we think? Let me just jump in on that uh, quickly, and then maybe, Laurie, just to clarify on the integrated review, because I don't think it's really kind of in the integrated it's, it's just it's kind of the part of the context because yeah. certainly from my discussions with people around this you know the british embassy and other kind of officials you know close to number 10 it's clear that that was kind of in their um yeah. their sites and i mean i think laurie can help us put it into kind of a much larger context I and mean, this is his 
bread and butter for looking at kind of changing foreign policy and strategic perspectives over the, the longer sweep. But I think, you know, if, if all of us just take a look over the spread of our own kind of careers, we can, you know, actually probably pinpoint some of the points where the domestic angle did start to creep in. And I would certainly say it was actually after the end of the Cold War when there's the whole idea that we were going to have the peace dividend and then we never seem to really get it, right? And that was the whole idea that we'd be able to kind of, the Germans did it actually, didn't they really? I mean, kind of pack up, put all the military toys away and focus on, um, you know, a sort of uh, domestic development. And Germany, you know, transformed itself from a state that actually did during the Cold War have a pretty large bristling military uh, to, you know, one that was very much focused on creating BMWs and Mercedes-Benz and, you know, kind of being around the world as the manufacturing powerhouse, not on weapons and armaments, but on consumer goods. And, you know, we've had the whole criticism about then the UK, you know, the 1980s and afterwards stopped making things um, apart from financial instruments and new novel ones and, you know, all kinds of uh, investment uh, mechanisms. And, you know, the United States, um, you know, obviously uh, continued actually with the large military industrial complex, very much focused on globalization, open trade and uh, free markets until, uh, you know, everything comes back to bite uh, in the um, aftermath of the Great Recession, the financial crisis of 2010. And, you know, 2016 was clearly for both the UK and the United States a bit of a shock to the system, you know, kind of an anti-globalization um, uh, reaction. But, you know, new and under, you know, kind of very much uh, on top of all of this, but from different vantage points, one, Brussels becomes, you know, the kind of the place to rail against in the United Kingdom, much more complex than that. I'm just simplifying this. But in the United States, it's very much this idea that globalization has been a disaster for the United States and for the United States um, economy in the sense of all the people who've been left behind by the, the, the changes. And so you have this kind of reaction and, and Trump is the manifestation of that. And you might recall that Trump wasn't just railing against China. And the idea of putting tariffs on Chinese steel and aluminum and, you know, all kinds of other you know, goods flooding into the market, but bringing jobs back from Mexico and, you know, everywhere else that they'd been offshored, but also running against the European Union as well. As um, and he said, you know, famously, and I heard him say it many times, the European Union is smaller, but worse than China. And what did he mean by that? He meant it on the trade perspective, the idea that the European Union wasn't perhaps stealing U.S. jobs, but was blocking US companies from access to uh, European markets and that the uh, relationship in the transatlantic sphere had kind of got out of kilter. Now, this has been a common complaint from actually US presidents, just we haven't focused on it for years, decades, in fact, probably going back to Kennedy and Johnson and others who were always kind of complaining about the, you know, the balance of trade being out of kilter because of US um, uh, troop deployments and, uh, you know, all the investment in European security and this kind of expectation then that the US should have unfettered access to uh, European markets and should be given massive trade concessions. And, you know, but for a, a long time, there was still a consensus that it was much more worthwhile to be at the centre of, uh, of the NATO alliance, uh, that the security uh, considerations outweighed uh, the economic considerations, but for Trump, that wasn't the case at all. And that's what he meant when mm -hmm. he said, kept saying the EU was worse. There wasn't a protection element for China. There wasn't a security guarantee. That was long gone since, you know, the end of World War II. 
And instead, he kind of saw the um, Europeans as a bunch of ingrates who were ripping the United States off and, you know, taking security for nothing, not burden sharing, not stepping up on the 2%. That's where the, you know, the special relationship where with the UK was getting tarnished as well. I mean, you know, the UK was stepping up, but perhaps not as much as it had in the past. And the Germans were doing nothing in his view. And that's therefore they deserve to be whacked with tariffs as well and tariffs on autos and uh, you know, treated the same as China because, you know, everyone was just ripping off the United States and its security guarantee. I mean, it was a kind of primitive way of looking at it. It wasn't out of step with, you know, many of the complaints of American presidents in the past. And so, you know, I think this has kind of had a long tail to it. It's not a sudden change, but it's also the very much the case that, you know, farmers in Iowa, you know, might be actually more well aware of where their soybean crop goes to and be you know, following China and things you know, pretty acutely. But, you know, a lot of people in the United States are just kind of wondering about the burdens of foreign policy, the forever wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, and what is this really kind of bringing back to the country? And so there's also been that pushing it forward as well. But I'm sure Laurie can, you know, put this into a, you know, different suite. But I don't think it should be a surprise to us yeah. that there's that to change for any of us who, you know, have been paying attention for some time or living in the countries, you know, not just sitting in our think tank or university bubbles. If we've been out there, you know, engaging with our family and friends, we know that people's perspectives have been shifting on all of these issues. Because it's Friday afternoon and I haven't seen you for ages, I'm not going to pick you up on aluminum. But anyway, uh, Laurie. I know. Well, see, I've had to practice that because when I say aluminium, people go, what? And then they laugh at me. So, you know, I have to kind of, you know, I, I'm just, just in case there's an American watching aluminum, okay, aluminum, aluminum you know, just, just, just in case people are like that, you know, she's really secretly a Brit. Because I have had people write to me and said, you know, you do still speak like a British person, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I know that. <laughs> Laurie. Have some oregano, if that's helpful to anyone. Oh, um, so the, the, there are there are great changes underway. So the, the 1990s was the decade of globalism, um, and our values were going to sweep the world. And if you wanted to trade with the West, you would take on our ideas, and you would take on join our institutions. And that seems an awfully long time ago. Um, and part of it was the rise of China because as wh whatever was going to happen with China, uh, it was never going to turn into uh, a Western clone. Uh, so the idea that you, that uh, a free market, a, a market economy, just about called China that, uh, had to be a liberal, a liberal society clearly was going to go anyway. Uh, and the speed of China's advance challenged that. Um, and I think part of what is going on and I'm in Rana's territory here is um, the more assertive uh, Chinese policy over the last, well, under Z, uh, essentially, uh, the wolf warrior diplomacy and so on, has sharpened that sense of, um, of a challenge to, I mean, the democracies were the successful ones. The idea that an authoritarian country could be successful. Uh, is actually quite an important challenge because by and large they were big and large and, and awkward but they weren't very successful China appeared successful secondly the financial crisis which showed that the West could fail um, and um, screwed up mightily and though we got through that the consequences uh, I mean I, I think we're still living through the consequences of the financial crisis um, and that part of that was austerity um, and then 
moving on, you've got the uh, the challenge to multilateralism. I mean, Fiona uh, described it in terms of Trump's views. I mean, it was a general challenge. He didn't believe in international institutions. He thought they were all out to screw the US. Uh, so he didn't even bother with the rhetoric, at least, you know, the British trying to keep the rhetoric going. Uh, uh, Trump didn't even bother with that. Um, and international institutions are struggling. The UN is deadlocked in the Security Council. Um, well, the WHO has been discredited. Uh, I mean, it may, it, hopefully it'll, it'll recover, but it's struggling as being seen to have been too much uh, in hot to the Chinese. Uh, the WTO uh, uh, was damaged under Trump. Uh, and the European Union is struggling. I, I mean, the, the trouble is when the British talk about this, it's assumed we're just sort of waiting, sort of knitting needles at the ready to, to watch it uh, collapse completely, which isn't the case. It's clearly not going to collapse completely, um, but, it, but it struggles um, to, uh, to come up with um, uh, sort of agile answers to the problems it faces. And uh, you know we'll we'll see what contribution you know, Macron, uh, Draghi, um, Merkel uh, are making to the to, to the uh, to the discussion to the G7. But but the, they're not really speaking with one voice. They've got the awkward issue of Hungary when they when they try to. We'll see whether their stimulus package is going to be big enough. Um, the vaccine program. Is, is is getting is, is going quite well now, but it took a while to do so. So, um, and that's tarnished too the the, the image of multilateralism. Where you're always better off if you're sharing and working and trying to find collective um, solutions. Which is one reason why I think Macron is anxious that the British don't succeed um, with Brexit. I think it would be, I think as far as he was concerned, that would send a very bad message. Excuse me, especially in regards to his own election next year. So um, all of these things have challenged. <coughs> I mean, it's not COVID; it's a cold. All of these things have have challenged um, the, uh, the 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 ideas of globalization, and and I think the difficulty <coughs> with COVID, not mine, um, is that it's shown that the problems of, of reliance on or a drink. <coughs> it's on the reliance on supply chains. Uh, I'm going to stop because I'm. Confident. We will come back to you. Come back to me. I'll talk about yeah. supply chains. I should, also, I should also just say, Fiona, if you have to go and deal with your daughter at any point, just just pop out and pop back. That's absolutely fine. So don't worry. Uh, Rana, I mean, it strikes me, and I know absolutely nothing about China, so this is just a waste of our time me saying it. But the, the Chinese have always been quite joined up. Uh, in this kind of way between the, the domestic and the internet. I mean, have, has, has there been a shift there too? There is a shift. And I think actually um, we'll give uh, Laurie a few moments just to sort of take a cup of tea and, uh, and recover his, his, his throat. But actually he stopped at a really useful moment because he was talking about supply chains. And of course, actually, you're going to think of one area where domestic policy and international policy in China have really been changing. And that is actually at the heart, the hub of what has shifted. So again, and I want to suggest I spend all my time reading the Chinese five-year plan, Anand, even though it is a absolutely thrilling, thrilling read. But the question of how far China is in a position to 
decouple from you know the wider world and become reliant on overseas supply chains while essentially making it sent itself essential to other people's supply chains or remaining essential to them is a really hot topic of discussion at the moment it's summed up in this sort of slightly odd phrase that's been used in the last few months in china which is the dual circulation strategy for the economy and this is a way of essentially arguing that somehow china is going to be able to both to maintain a much more indigenized economic system and a circuit around that economy, including stimulating large amounts of, of domestic co consumer growth to, to cope with the post-pandemic economy, while maintaining its status as a major, major supplier to the outside world, both of manufactured goods and increasingly in some areas of services and maintenance. And of course, 5G is one particular area where that would be relevant. We all heard of Huawei. Actually, there are other suppliers as well. And while in Western Europe and the G7 countries, there's going to be less involvement with that agenda now than there would have been a year ago, uh, clearly in other parts of the world, including the global south, there may, may well be more. Many economists have pointed out, sometimes usually slightly sotto foce and uh, you know, kind of uh, coughing, that actually, elements of dual circulation are not really compatible with each other. It is very unusual, if indeed not impossible, to find societies that both get their consumers to spend large amounts rather than saving, while also maintaining a very large uh, trade surplus. But, you know, things have, uh, uh, well, I've actually maybe strange things that haven't happened in the past, but, but nonetheless, at the moment, the policy seems to be predicated on the, these two things happening at the same time, while China continues to maintain uh, a very, very strong control on um, its uh, capital markets as, as well. So, you know, it's a conversation that's waiting to be had, but it certainly is fueling a very strong conversation on social media, which of course is a real factor in China now, in which that feeling that the outside world is seeking to contain China, to hold it in, is part of it. So the economic side of things, the idea that China essentially has to create an economy, ideally, that is much more self-sufficient than it would have been, is coming together with a much more ideological sense that actually the outside world doesn't mean China any good anyway. Just to flip for a moment the other direction from G7 side, what I've said in a general sense, the G7 is also a set of countries which is much more wary about engagement and trade with China, uh, Huawei in the UK, having a decision reversed to allow it into telecom systems as a good example, is also a reminder that this is broadly true, but not universally true. And Italy, of course, is one of the great uh, potential counterexamples. While Italy is warier than it was about Chinese investment and involvement, I think it's fair to say that of all the G7 countries, it's the one that's most friendly towards investment. I can't remember if uh, Huawei is out of court in Italy or not, but I'm not sure that it is actually. Whereas for clearly the United States, it was never even a player Anyway, Germany post Merkel is likely to be much more skeptical uh, about Chinese tech being embedded into domestic um, uh, systems. Canada, of course, has its own huge um, uh, concerns about this uh, uh, particular issue. And broadly speaking, that sense that domestic concern and uh, worry about greater Chinese investment in the economy is also part of a wider cross-national foreign policy strand that is essentially seeking also to decouple and to try and find indigenous production in sensitive areas on the other side, even though actually complete decoupling between the West and China, the G7 and China, will take a very long time if it is ever, ever indeed possible at all because of the interdependence of, of the two sides. I've got a very quick follow-up, which I'll hate myself if I don't ask you, which is, do you read this thing in Chinese? Which thing? The following 
Weibo and things. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not really available in English, so there aren't that many right. choices, I would say. I, but, I mean, there's a couple of things that have just been said. Firstly, this sort of dilemma about sort of domestic spending versus trade surplus. And secondly, Laurie talking about Hungary being a bit of a fly in the ointment in the EU. That brings me to a, a really interesting question, not about Hungary, but about Germany, which is in some ways Germany's an outlier, isn't it, given its uh, the way it deals with Russia? And also, in a sense, its attitude towards China that, you know, Germany doesn't seem to see the world the way that many G7 countries are coming to see. It. Is that an issue for the G7? Do we, I mean, Laurie or Fiona, I suppose, first or foremost. Well, I, I mean, I think we should also talk about Russia. So I, yep. I'm trying to tee up Fiona for that. Um, I think the, the problem with Germany is we don't quite know who's going to be running it by the end of the year. Um, mm -hmm. And... You know, you could have as many different colour permutations uh, as you choose at the moment in terms of where the various parties are. It's likely the Greens will be part of a German government. It's very hard to see a new coalition that's going to be enthusiastic about raising defence spending very high. Mm -hmm. um, it, the, the Russian issue is part of that. Um, I think there's been a degree of stepping back in Germany um, I think the, uh, I mean, the Nord Stream issue is, it hasn't quite gone away, although Biden has tried to diffuse it a bit. Um, there's also this sort of more interesting question, uh, uh, as Fiona will undoubtedly recall, the, the, the issue last year was whether Russia would be invited. Um, the, 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 um, there was a big, uh, the big issue, uh, really for much of the Trump term was not China, but was what do you do about Russia? Um, now, you know, Biden is going off to see Putin. Um, they're going to talk about a bit of arms control. But actually, in some ways, Russia and the, and, and the West appear to have reached a sort of stasis, I mean, an equilibrium of sorts, that there isn't a lot of dynamism in the relationship at the moment. They're not going to back off on, on Ukraine, but they're not going to be able to take it much further. Mm. You may rescue a bit of arms control, but it's not going to be transformational. And on a lot of the, uh, the, the Syria Middle Eastern situation has um, is just sort of bogged down. Um, so it's not altogether clear why Russia is that important. Whereas with China, there's so much to talk about. Um, actually, with Russia, there doesn't seem to be that much because it's a conversation we've been having over and over again for the last few years without it progressing very far. I mean, I, so I, mean, I, I trust what Fiona has to say on this more than me, but, but, I, but I think um, it, 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 the absence of, of Putin at this discussion doesn't actually seem to be a big deal. Mm. And before I come to Fiona, let me just say her book on Putin is well, well worth reading. But anyway, Fiona, over to you. Thanks very much. Thanks for the book plug as well. Um, the, um, <laughs> it's good to have. Um, I mean, Laurie's spot on here. I mean, I think we're actually all stuck with having <clears throat> to talk about Russia. And, uh, you know, obviously over here, there's a bit of a media frenzy uh, about the prospect of Biden meeting with Putin. Well, there wouldn't be if Biden was meeting with Xi, for example. And really that kind of underscores in a way that Russia has become a kind of a carnival sideshow or some sort of spectacle 
uh, that, you know, is kind of drawing everyone's attention. But, you know, really, it's just sort of going around as lobbyists saying the same things over and over and over again with not much prospect for getting out of this. And look, and I think that's also deliberate on the Russian part. I've been trying to explain to people that, you know, what Biden um, is trying to do to some of his predecessors. I mean, he's not trying to reset the relationship and look for kind of some massive progress, because as Laurie said, that's just not going to happen. We're not really looking for something positive coming out of this relationship anymore because we can't expect it. Even though you could actually see all kinds of areas for engagement, none of them are going to be transformational. You could do something on arms control, absolutely. I mean, for God's sake, Russia's vaccine Sputnik, you know, has showed promise in the labs and has seemed to be, uh, you know, effective. They've got massive production problems. But, you know, they've played politics such, to such an amount that they've, um, you know, also destroyed the psychological effectiveness of their own vaccine, let alone the actual, you know, chemical effectiveness, because they spent so much time on disinformation to, you know, talk down AstraZeneca and Pfizer and Moderna that now no Russian wants to have a vaccine either. Um, you've, you know, you've probably met your, your capacity and people around the world are suspicious of all vaccines. So, you know, kind of Russia really does know how to bring a pox literally on everyone's houses, you know, by its own disinformation attempt. So, you know, that is a kind of a problem. And it kind of sums up where Russia is because Russia is desperate to be relevant. And that's not to say that it shouldn't be relevant because again, there's lots of things that Russia could come forward on counter-proliferation as well as arms control. It could help massively with um, the environment. I mean, the Arctic is one of the most sensitive areas uh, under climate change. And what's the greatest Arctic power? It's Russia. I mean, they could be, instead of a spoiler, they could be a mass contributor, you know, to some of the global affairs here. They've got so much potential, but they're choosing not. Why? Because unlike uh, the Chinese Communist Party, which is offering something for the future, Russia's offering nothing for the future. Putin's just offering more of himself and the people around him up to 2036. He's making fun of Joe Biden for being 78. Well, Putin will still be in office at 78 and 84, if that's kind of where he's going to 2036. So he should be careful about what he's talking about. He hasn't got all of this kind of potential of innovation. I mean, although Sputnik shows that they could still do it. Um, they're not talking about a 2025 plan that has them dominating all the world's economy by 2049. They're offering novel ways of killing people and, um, and cyber intrusions and, you know, kind of ways of making everybody just look pretty bad. So, I mean, that is not a recipe, in my view, for success and, you know, trying to sound harsh about it. But it's just like, you know, hello, Russia, what are you going to bring the world apart from, you know, kind of an awful lot of mayhem? You know, so where is the Russia of the past that had these great achievements? And that's kind of, you know, part of the problem because Russia wants to show that it's in the game as well and is just as good as the United States and China. Well, good luck with that. I mean, it can easily bring the United States down because we've got so many of our own domestic problems, but it doesn't dare compete with China or confront China. And it wants China then, you know, to see it as a major player by beating up on the West, on the United States and, and Europe, frankly. That's kind of where we are right now. So that is really a dilemma. And the G7, the last time when Trump wanted to bring Russia in, partly it was to kind of poke the Europeans in the eye, you know, for, as he thought, and he was right, their hypocrisy about saying Russia was a problem, yet going ahead with Nord Stream 2 and all the rest of it. And, you know, he wanted to sanction the Germans on Nord Stream 2 to teach them a lesson. You know, Biden has decided that's too explosive and, you know, kind of doesn't want to do that. But, you know, Trump was always trying to say to the, to the Europeans, you keep telling me that Russia is a massive problem, but you still want to trade with Russia. You still want Russian oil and gas. You still want to pay Russia lots. And you want me to pay for NATO? I don't think so. I mean, he just had his own, you know, inimitable way of, of saying all of these things. 
But he really wanted to have Russia on the US side for a couple of key purposes. One was against Iran, uh, but of course, not understanding that Russia actually wanted the JCPOA and to constrain Iran itself, because actually Russia's getting bogged down now in the Middle East because of this bizarreness of trying to have good relations with everybody. And in Syria, with the United States and everybody else out, what's Russia left with? Iran and a very tricky uh, client state with Assad who just takes their money and doesn't really do anything that they ask. And so, you know, kind of Syria's future is all about Russia trying to manage its relationships with Turkey and Iran and then keep an eye on the security of Israel, which is also one of its partners. But the main point of, for Trump was trying to pull Russia over into an anti-China coalition because he thought that that would be in Russia's interests. Well, wrong on that too, because the worst scenario for Russia is a world post-global pandemic where the West has totally failed, and it's just a world dominated by China, because then Russia becomes the upper volta with missiles or the raw materials appendage, not of the West, but of China. And Russia does not want to be that. Russia wants to be a power that China reckons with, but in a world in which we've all faded to grey, that's not going to be the case. So that's really the kind of the dilemma that Russia poses. But it can only, you know, be relevant if Biden goes off there and meets and, you know, kind of. So the Russians are interested in managing the confrontation a bit. They want managed confrontation. We want to manage our way out of a confrontation, but they want to retain the friction because, like for everybody else, it's all about China. I, I am going to come to you in a sec, Rana, on that very issue, which is, you know, is Russia a power that needs to be taken seriously by China? But before I do that, I mean, I've, I've been enjoying this so much that I've been even worse than usual, which is admittedly a very low bar at posing the questions you've been sending in. But just to warn both the audience and the panel that after Rana's talked about this for a minute, I'm going to switch to the questions and try and rattle through them. So it might think of it as a bit like a quick fire round. I mean, some of these questions aren't particularly quick fire, but we're going to try and get through a few of these questions. So I don't feel quite so bad about not. But Rana, China's attitude towards Russia and the nature of that relationship. I think the relationship is one that is pragmatic and strategic, but probably not more than that. And I think actually Fiona gave a really good account there of the way in which Russia both in some ways resents the rise of China deeply, but also sees it as useful for trying to push Russia's own agenda for relevance into the, the wider world. One could summarize it perhaps more, more, more um, uh, pithily, if not as accurately as Fiona, by saying that in some senses, uh, I think the, uh, you know, the, 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 the Russians slightly despise the Chinese because they've never had Dostoevsky, and the Chinese despise the Russians because they've never invented Huawei. Between those two particular positions, there's a sort of difficulty because neither side quite sees a reflection of the other in, uh, in, in the other one. I think at the moment, the overall agenda is going to be one in which they're going to keep a, a sort of united front. And that's a, a loaded phrase, because, of course, the united front between the Soviet and the Chinese Communist parties was an important part of the early Cold War before they fell out and actually became much, much worse enemies than uh, they were with the Americans. One of the reasons we should remember why Nixon, Kissinger and then Nixon were able to visit Beijing in the early uh, 1970s. Well, that rift has been rather... Um, uh, you know, kind of uh, smoothed over in, in, in the last few decades, not least because mm. the threat to both is clearly coming from the, the Western world. But I think the underlying lack of trust is still very real. And the place that you can see that is a place that actually ought to be of more concern to the G7, but to some extent isn't. And that's Central Asia, where, of course, large parts of it essentially are former parts of the old Russian empire. They are now technically independent states. They do have still, in most cases, very strong connections with Moscow. There is a Eurasian customs union, economic union, these sorts of structures. And yet, actually, it's China 
in many cases, which is really putting in the investment, the Belt and Road Initiative, now, of course, famous as this, you know, great Chinese plan to try and, you know, uh, spread its influence over half the world. Um, a, I'm not entirely sure that's that that's true, but that's a different question. But the, the wider issue is that it started, of course, in Central Asia. It was, in fact, I think in Astana, where it was first announced. And actually, the Russian reaction to the Chinese, you know, placing of economic tanks on this particular desertified lawn in Central Asia was not entirely happy. I think it's fair to fair to say. Obviously, Moscow wasn't going to say anything very much in in public, but I think there's a sense in which the sort of backyard is mediated through the Shanghai Corporation Organization, probably you know the the major sort of big, vast, baggy, vaguely defined body that uh, holds all these these entities together, but not in terms of its being fully resolved. So yes, you'll hear a lot about common plans, and there may be particular elements that I think are, are, are um, brought together at certain times, but I don't think there's a feeling in Moscow and Beijing that they've got each other's back when, uh, particularly if those backs are against the wall, to, to mix the metaphor for a moment. Now, okay, here we go. I mean, we've got a question on the protocol, uh, which I think probably is going to come to you, Fiona, in the sense that it is a question about how far will Joe Biden go? And is Joe Biden committed to the protocol as far as you, the Northern Ireland protocol as far as you know, or is he just interested in the, the Good Friday Agreement? I mean, how much pressure is this American administration willing to put on the UK government to get this sorted out? And if any of these questions, your instinctive reaction is, Lord alone knows, just say so, that's fine, and we'll move on. Well, you know, well, in this particular case, um, I mean, look, across the board in the United States, there, um, and this is the political board, that is, I mean, not, you know, kind of most of the population thinking about this, but of course, there are some, you know, pretty um, large um, Irish American constituencies in lots of major cities who think about this as well. There's a little bit of shock at the way that, you know, kind of the whole Northern Ireland um uh, situation is unraveled you know so quickly mm. and uh, sort of a, a and also a bit of dismay at the seeming carelessness in which the um uk government has handled this i mean i have to say myself that i was quite astounded when i was in office that i mean i kept asking about well how's this affected into brexit and uh trump himself was alarmed when it was raised, you know, and um, his, because of course he seemed to be such a, you know, massive supporter of Brexit in theory, because it was all about the retain your sovereignty, America first, you know, of course, you know, we know that he kind of rhetorically supported Brexit while he was golf golfing in Turnbury in the summer of 2016. But he had not thought through the implications of this. And as soon as it was posed to him that this could have very deleterious effects on uh, Good Friday and on the, uh, the peace uh, between Northern and Southern Ireland, uh, the Irish Republic, he immediately uh, drew his attention. Uh, and it may be, you know, partly because he's got his um, golf course in Dunebeg, but it was also clear to him that it, this was a, a real problem and he had not thought about it, as indeed had many of the people in the um, Trump administration who were rhetorically and, you know, even substantively supporting um, not, uh, Brexit. They were always told that it'll all be fine, it'll be okay, and they then so they assumed that it had been thought through, and so I think it's been quite a shock to find that it wasn't. This is actually one of the reasons why Mick Mulvaney wanted to be, you know, the envoy uh, to Ireland. Nancy Pelosi kind of showing up, you know, in Congress, and you know, in, in very uh, key cities, you know, at the mayoral, governor level. I mean, there's a lot of concern about this. And so, you know, I think there will be a push, and it's not just because of the affinity, you know, for Ireland. 
it's just, you know, kind of the US has a stake. I mean, it was, you know, Senator Mitchell and, you know, okay, the Clinton administration and others, but there was an awful lot of US effort at all kinds of different levels put into finding a solution to this problem and a recognition that that solution came because of the larger framework of the European Union. So I think there will be a lot of willingness to be creative though as well, to help kind of figure out how we can have a new frame. Uh, one thing, you know, when the time that I was there, and I'll just say that I met with um, uh, both, uh, you know, Sinn Féin and the Ulster Unionists, DUP, um, it was in my portfolio when I was at the National Security Council, and it did strike me, um, and I'll just put that up there for what it's worth, that, you know, the framing was also in a, um, for the people that I was interacting with from Northern Ireland, not from the Irish Republic, who I think had, you know, kind of seen the way that the world was changing, was still a very British frame. I mean, you've been writing about this, Anand. I felt that they were the last British subjects in the sense of describing themselves as British. I describe myself as British as well, but I know that I'm a dying breed in the sense that, you know, all my family are from every one of the major five, including traveller, you know, ethnicities from Britain. So I wouldn't know how to describe myself in any other way. But, you know, kind of, I was very struck by how they kept talking about being British and that, you know, kind of, so that kind of loss of a sense of Britishness was a major problem. There was very limited interaction with the Scots and the Welsh, which I was struck by in Northern Ireland as well. So mm. it seemed to me that there could be, if a mind was put to it, of finding some kind of way of dealing with the identity side of the politics, very difficult, of course, I'm not kind of trying to say this would be easy, and trying to find some economic framing, and that the United States would be willing to help at all kinds of different levels. And I say the United States deliberately, because it's not just about the Biden administration, it's members of Congress, this would be a bipartisan effort. Hmm. And, you know, it was certainly a kind of a sense, you know, there are an awful lot of people in the United States as well who see themselves as Ulster Scots, Scots-Irish. So it's not just, you know, Catholic, Irish, Joe Biden, you know, my family's all from, you know, the Irish Republic. You've got a lot of um, good, well-meaning, you know, people on all kinds of sides of this who would be willing to work with the United, uh, the United Kingdom and the Irish government and perhaps the EU as well to find something that might work here. But there's a real horror now at the outbreak of violence. I mean, you might not know the answer to this question, but I'm going to put it to you anyway, just in case, which is, you know, in private for the US administration, is this is this a case of you two just knuckle down and sort it out? Or is there a perception that this is being driven by a British reluctance to sign up to a deal that they ratified in Parliament? So is it is it being seen oh, as... Oh, there was a lot of there was a lot of concern about this being the UK government. I mean, I'll have to say that, you know, kind of even Trump administration as well. You know, there's a lot of people behind the scenes just incredulous this hadn't been thought through. Right. Because they kept being told, no, it's all right, it'll be fine. And it really wasn't fine. Yeah. Laurie, you might want to do a tactical cough at this point because this isn't an easy one. Uh, what tests would you suggest for judging the success of global Britain? The first test is, is whether we stay a United Kingdom, I guess. Um, uh, that's not, not a bad answer, I don't think, on the spur of the moment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's the first test. I mean, the, the, the big challenges to the UK are um, internal, um, as with all the all countries. Uh, so does the economy recover? Do we, um, uh, how does employment look? But you know, what happens with Scotland and, and with Northern Ireland? So I think that's the first. The, the, the other part of it is it's partly activity. 
you know, the, I mean, the, the, the UK can do things and is starting to do things which look more global. I mean, it's not unique in this. France is also getting very involved in the Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific region, as we should now call it. Um, and so there's, pl there's plenty that the, the, the UK can do. It's been quite quick on foreign policy issues over the last six months. It's um, it's got its sanctions in early uh, time. So there's so there's it, and, and you know it'll still be involved in in, uh, in in meetings such as the G7, even if it won't be uh, chairing them so much in the future. Um, but the you know the big and, and I think also we've mentioned climate change what happens with vaccines this is when i had my coughing fit before just let me just say one one thing on that um i mentioned supply change which has become a really big issue um and i think it's going to be you know it's clearly one of the lessons the uk has learned and other countries too is you don't want to be dependent the other thing is the competition amongst vaccines and i and, and ron is obviously right that we need all the vaccines we can get but the fact is there's now a hierarchy of vaccines with Pfizer, Moderna, uh, which are two separate companies, but they're up there at the top. AstraZeneca, very effective, but 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 somehow managed to get itself a bit of a tarnished reputation. Um, the Chinese vaccine, nobody really knows, including the Chinese, how well it works because they've never released decent figures. Um, and I think one of the problems for the Chinese is they've got so caught up with their own narratives about the pandemic um, that, 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 that nobody actually believes what they're saying, even if it's right. And then you've got Sputnik, which is, seems to be a perfectly good uh, vaccine, but as Fiona mentioned, nobody trusts it. I mean, it's not even clear that Putin had it. Um, so, um, uh, so I think you've got really big issues about how vaccines roll out. My guess is um, that actually it won't be as collaborative an effort, but AstraZeneca will be an important part of the mix. So I think, you know, that will be seen as one, you know, you hear the British government rhetoric, Britain's gift to the world uh, is the Oxford vaccine. Um, so I think that's also going to be part of it. But in the end, in five years time, the question is going to be, uh, are, we are we still a United Kingdom or are, 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 we, uh, are we fragmented? Brilliant, thank you. There's a, there's a couple now that I'm going to lump together just for the sake of ease. And Rana, just chip in. I mean, just because it's not about China, don't don't feel you you have to keep quiet. I mean, the first is, does the D10 have a future, and if so, as what? What would its function be? And the second one is, I suppose, I'm paraphrasing what people are writing in. Uh, does the New Atlantic Charter have anything beyond symbolic importance? As you wish on those, Rana. Yeah, I could throw a quick thought in in here while the more expert people then come back come back in afterwards um i think the d10 is perfectly fine as an expression of interest and sort of direction of trajectory and the idea it seems to me that liberal democracies should get together and be very upfront about the fact that they have shared values and those values are worthwhile nothing wrong with that whatsoever i think the problem comes with what seem to be attempts to try and formalize and operationalize it, which is whereas I think everyone on this panel and probably everyone watching and knows, you run into all sorts of problems because then you start getting the sort of whataboutery and the sort of poking away at the edges. I mean, you know, the obvious example, and we're talking here about the G7, so let's talk about, you know, the guest uh, countries that have been invited. India is certainly a democracy in the sense that it has many parties, that uh, there are 
moment free and fair elections. There are far fewer questions at the moment about uh, Indian electoral practice uh, being uh, certified than there is American at the moment, which is which is interesting. But nonetheless, I don't think anyone who's observed India in the last couple of years would, I think, step away from the fact that in a lot of areas which democracy should display, uh, freedom of media, civil society, ability of all sides to be able to put their case without you know, fear of, of violence and so forth. If you look at world journalism indexes, India has been plummeting down all of those. So it's ridiculous to say that India is not a democracy, but it's also, I think, very misleading to suggest that it's a liberal democracy in the sense that uh, many other such countries are. And yet, it seems to me evident, not least through institutions such as the Quad, institutions such as the way in which reform of the UN Security Council and the UN General Assembly more broadly are going, that India will have to be part of that conversation. And it's a reminder that these are conversations in which you don't get to choose the exact nature of everyone you want to talk to. One other slightly you know, more uh, um, uh, kind of extreme in, in, in the sort of democracy sense example, but one that's coming up more and more for regions of, of maritime uh, issues is Vietnam, which is makes no claim to be a liberal democracy whatsoever and is not, but is a very, very important Southeast Asian actor in terms of the interests of many of the G7 actors and indeed many of the other actors in the region. The other reason I think, just to, to add one more thing to it, and this is what happens when perhaps you get from the G7 to the G20 and beyond is this. There are lots of countries in, let's say Southeast Asia, which either are you know, reasonably robust democracies or at least democratic in some significant form, varying from Singapore, which is highly ordered, but which of course keeps its domestic politics very, very strongly under control, particularly on media, to Indonesia, which is perhaps actually freer in terms of uh, freedom of speech in, in some ways, but has an awful lot of insurgencies going on that lead to civil liberties violations. Nonetheless, all of these countries, I think, have one thing in common, which is that they do not like the way in which they're being explicitly pushed towards choosing between a, an American-dominated security contract, which essentially underplays economics, and a Chinese-oriented economic contract, which essentially argues that their fears over security are, uh, are overblown. Anyone can see that both of those issues are ones that countries that are in the region and have no option of, of leaving are going to have to deal with, and there is no good solution. So if I were that one final policy thought off the back of the G7, and I think it's one we'll actually hear a lot more about during the next year, and actually your think tank, uh, Anand, UK-EU, is going to be thinking much more about it, which is this. What does the UK accession to the CPTPP, the Comprehensive uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership, actually mean? Mean in terms of being in when the US is still out and might be out for a while. Mean in terms of engagement of the UK with a major trading and you know, free trade oriented organization in a region where RCEP and all sorts of other much more Chinese dominated ent entities are, are there. And finally, what does it mean in a world where the Chinese have gone 180 degrees and have moved from saying that they think the old TPP is a terrible idea to contain China to their current position, which is that actually CPTPP looks really interesting and they're very, very interested in being members themselves. What does the UK, what do the rest of the G7 think about that? And once we're in, what are we going to do about it? Interesting. I'd like to jump in on this and actually hear what Laurie um, has to say as well, because I think, you know, Ron has really put his finger on the fact that, you know, kind of, in a way, we're kind of looking for more flexible institutions to deal with this rapidly changing world, which, you know, of course, is one of the themes of your, you know, seminar series here. And, you know, the idea of kind of creating these rigid blocks seems, you know, kind of passe. And I mean, it's probably one of the reasons why so many of our multilateral institutions are in trouble, that they were kind of fit for purpose at an earlier time. And they've 
through being formalized and literally institutionalized and you know being there for such a long period they've become ossified and um you know kind of in a way incredibly difficult to adjust i mean that was kind of one of the reasons of course that the uk ended up leaving uh the european union because that sort of flexibility was disappearing and you know kind of having multiple different tracks as people were calling it but i mean really what might kind of say you know a certain um uh, again i'll just keep using the word flexibility but a certain ability to adapt and to um you know do different things for different purposes and you know there really is a risk as rana is suggesting here they're formalizing all of this beyond the symbolic symbolic value so i do think you know kind of throw this over to to laurie i mean is it really kind of possible you know thinking about the larger sweep of um you know of time and in the way of our kind of innovation and um uh an organizational creation to kind of create a kind of a flexible matrix system in which you know a country like the uk could be in many different things and then still find sort of sufficient um cooperation and formalized collaboration to be able to make achievements because i think that that's kind of in a way of, you know i had to say what trump was kind of looking for he was looking for kind of like a world in which you didn't have to really kind of make a big commitment uh, and you know, take lots of responsibilities and take on all kinds of money, but that you can also also avail yourself of um, you know some of the benefits of of some of the these organisations. I mean, he was kind of looking for sort of responsibility light, I guess, uh, or you know, kind of a, a and again a, a way of dealing with all of these these shifts. And I think that that's really our dilemma: are we going to get bogged down by um, a lot of these institutional arrangements rather than being able to use them? to spur action to deal with some of the critical issues that we need to. Sorry? I mean, I think the CPTPP is fascinating. I mean, there's a, an initiative and it's hard to argue against it. Um, it it's simpler, it seems to be simpler than, than some of the other deals, possibly because the United States is not is part of it at the moment. Um, and um, it'll be, uh, and I think both Rana and Fiona have indicated, if, if it happens, I suspect it might, uh, then it opens up other possibilities. Whether you can start using it for other aspects of diplomacy, especially once you, as a new member, I'm, I'm, I'm less sure. But it's certainly in terms of, of the answer to the question, you know, what is a success for global Britain? Well, this would, this would, counters it because it's something you wouldn't have been able to do in the EU and brings in lots of interesting, uh, brings in commitments. I don't think you can just do it as a free ride. I mean, there's, there's some significant commitments that come there. So it's an interesting one. And let's go back to the Atlantic Charter one, as you did raise it, Amon. Mm -hmm. um, the, um, the original Atlantic Charter is a, is a remarkable document, mm -hmm. uh, uh, had amazing implications. <coughs> which were not necessarily seen at the time. I'm going to start coughing again. <coughs> um, Do you want to have a quick I pause? Think... Yes. Pause, then I'll come back in a moment. All right. Well, we have, we have two choices then, Fiona or Rana, if you have anything to say about the Atlantic Charter, or we can move on. Actually, just very, very quickly, Fiona, before we come back to Laurie on the Atlantic Charter, uh, how do you think the current US administration views or does it have a view on the decision about UK development funding and the 0.7% pledge? Is that something that causes concern or is that seen as largely domestic and with no broader implications? 
I haven't seen much of a debate about this, I have to say. Um, right. I mean, I think that there's, you know, kind of still, I mean, we're certainly the um, Biden administration has returned back to thinking about development. I mean, putting Samantha Power in charge of USAID, you know, put somebody in a very high profile there. I mean, interestingly enough, under the uh, Trump administration, probably got kind of lost in the mix. There's actually been quite a serious look at development funding and foreign assistance and what was it being used for? And, you know, kind of, it actually ties to China again, Rana, uh, you know, this kind of concern that a lot of um, US aid was actually going off to kind of pay off debts to China in, you know, high uh, indebted uh, countries like a Kyrgyzstan or, you know, somewhere else, for example. And there was a real desire to kind of tie foreign assistance, no surprise, to US political priorities. Uh, and, you know, kind of moving away from some of the development perspectives of, of the past, you know, a hard look at the World Bank. That's why I've got a pushing somebody like David Malpass there. So I think there's a kind of a, a, a long thread going here about rethinking development. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure what Samantha Power is going to be doing at USAID, but, you know, certainly with Malpass at the World Bank and others, you know, trying to sort of like think about what, what, is, what is development these days and what are we gearing towards? What are we trying to achieve? And I'm sure then that there might be a turn then to look about what the UK is doing. And then there might be some concern or there might be, you know, in fact, uh, you know, some sort of effort to see how the UK and the US could work together. But right now I haven't really seen that. But as I said, there's been a long thread of discussion here about what is the nature of our foreign assistance. And, you know, it's partly because of Trump also talking about the US as being the world piggy bank and, you know, kind of everybody, you know, kind of putting their hands into it or trying to smash it to get at the, the small change that's in it. But, you know, kind of, I, I think that there is now a, a, a big discussion about what is development, foreign assistance, what are we trying to achieve here? How do we work with our partners and allies on this as well? I am going to come back to you, Laurie, and you'll almost certainly have the last word, I think, but Ron was waving halfway through that. So just out a brief note that one capital where I think there is a conversation going on about the UK aid cuts, I can't swear to it, but I can give you the context, is Beijing. Because actually of all the institutions of British government, the one that actually attracted most attention and respect and huge amounts of copying and imitation actually on the Chinese side was DFID. Uh, the idea actually that Britain as a relatively smaller power could deploy its funding, but also its expertise in ways that made such an impact around the world, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, an area in which China, as you know, has a major expansion, expansionary interest in terms of economics and, and development. This was something where essentially, you know, civil servants from Beijing were being flown over to London to sort of talk about and say, mm -hmm. how do you do it? And if we talk about global Britain, if there's going to be an FCDO with a D in it, it is absolutely essential that the, you know, the world attracting and certainly the China attracting part of the old DFID are preserved and supported. And it's not at the moment entirely clear, it's early days, whether that's happening or not. The other thing is, of course, the very rapid cuts in ODA, which have led to lots of existing projects being cut down, create a perfect space for China to go and say, here's a bunch of cash, we'll sort it out. It may be the case that that cash is restored in two, three, five years time, whenever the government feels it can afford to do that again. But that's a very long time to leave an area of huge British advantage in terms of international influence, basically on the floor, <coughs> while another power, perfectly legitimately in its own terms, and from the point of view of the recipients, decides to fill in the gap. Strategically, I think that's something that's well worth thinking about whether the short-term gain is worth a long-term loss. And Laurie, you will indeed have the last word. I think we have four minutes left. Whether I can keep going for four minutes. Is <laughs> um, I won't try and take the time. But just to, uh, Rana said one of the things I wanted to say, which is, 
before the cut the uh, uh, was announced, the important news was was the merger with the Foreign Office, which meant that it was supposedly going to have a more political direction and, and more geared to national interests than just the sort of traditional diffid um, mission statement, which, which was all about doing good for the poor of the world rather than promoting UK national interests. Um, I think actually, the, the, I don't know whether it'll go back up to 0.7, but I'd be very surprised given the strength of feeling against the cut uh, and some of the damage that's already been done, that if it isn't restored quite quickly, um, that depends on or other economic factors, but it's in the great scheme of things, it wouldn't be that difficult. Going back to what I was saying on the Atlantic Charter, I think the, um, you know, the point about the original Atlantic Charter was that it was an attempt by Churchill to cement his relationship with Roosevelt. That's what it was about. We didn't know then that it would be, you know, come the basis of the UN Charter and everything else that followed. It was a statement of why the US and the UK had to work together, or the British Empire, as it then was. Uh, in fact, the Atlantic Charter was in some ways sounded the death knell for the British Empire because of the stress on self-determination uh, and, and human rights. So um, I think the new one doesn't quite do that, but it has a similar purpose, in, in going back to where we started, as demonstrating that the UK and the US uh, are similar powers. And despite it all, and this is sort of round up the discussion a bit, they are still similar powers. Um, I mean, the, the special relationship uh, is a term that, that we, we learned this week that Boris Johnson doesn't like because it sounds a bit needy. Um, but you know, the two maritime powers, uh, neither of them have to get involved in international affairs in the way that others do because, uh, I mean, leaving aside how, how bad Ireland could get, uh, by and large, they're in pretty safe parts of the world. Um, and they have choices that other countries don't have and similar cultures. So I wouldn't just dismiss it as a bit of rhetoric and writing. Uh, and I would say that, you know, one of, the con one of the reasons why the UK got itself in the mess over the last few years um, is because its natural partner was absent. Um, you know, in the past, an American president would not have allowed a dispute between its allies in Europe to have developed in the way that, that the Brexit mm -hmm. developed. Um, there were there were ways to deal with it, uh, which Trump was never going to uh, adopt. Obama might have done. Clinton, I think, Clinton, if she'd won, possibly would have done. So we've missed uh, having an American president with whom we can work, and that's why I think. In the end, Johnson is putting quite as much effort as he is putting into to try to cement that relationship. Excellent, thank you. On that, which was a pretty up, optimistic and upbeat, yeah. I think, a good one on which to end. Let me just round things off by thanking Fiona, Laurie, and Rana. I thought that was utterly fascinating. Uh, I apologise to the audience for finding it so fascinating that I ignored your questions till the 11th hour, but I hope you found this interesting. If you're interested in the climate debate, we have an event just about that on Monday. But for the moment, thanks to the three of you so much for taking the time on what is here, at least, Fiona, a very sunny uh, Friday afternoon. And uh, have a very, very good weekend, everyone, and see you soon. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.